Yo, technology, what is it all about? They're doing a form of privacy washing, which they're trying to, it's really a deliberate attempt to use privacy, you know, to invoke privacy to help their brand, but not actually deliver it to consumers. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. It has been quite a week. So obviously the big four tech CEOs, Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos for the first time ever, um, Sundar Pichai and Tim Cook of Apple were hauled before Congress this week, um, which mostly involved a lot of histrionics and grandstanding and nonsense. But also, for the first time, it really showed that this 13-month investigation into these companies has been a huge education for lawmakers. So there were actually some tough, quite probing questions mixed into all the other um, hullabaloo. And many of those questions were drawn from something like 1.3 million emails and documents that the companies have been forced to produce as part of this whole investigation. Anyhow, point is, you will have read about all of that by the time you hear this podcast. So I thought a better way to address kind of the big tech crackdown, what is happening and why, was to talk to one of the little guys who have been valiantly fighting against Google in the background for all these years. Um, And that company is DuckDuckGo, which is a privacy-focused search engine. At least that's how it started out. Now they do a whole bunch more around privacy. You may have heard of them. Maybe you haven't. But depending on how these rules, these new rules take shape, the crackdown takes shape, you might suddenly be hearing a lot more about them because they could theoretically be freed from some of the um, barriers, let's say, to competition. So that is who we have on the program this week. We have Gabriel Weinberg. He is the chief executive and founder of the company. He has a super interesting story to tell, and uh, it is, of course, supremely relevant to recent events. So if you want to know how to build a company in the shadow of one of the of the big guys, this is the pod for you. So without further ado, I give you Gabriel Weinberg, founder of DuckDuckGo. Enjoy. Great. So um, first of all, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. So all the big tech CEOs are going to be sitting in Congress being questioned for the first time ever. And it keeps, it conjures this image of the big tobacco executives in the nineties or the wall street CEOs after the financial crisis. It feels like this is whenever there is a crackdown, you have to have this moment where all these guys kind of sit in front of Congress and answer questions. And was just wondering you've at DuckDuckDo, you've been at this now for how long? 11 years, 12 years longer 2008 started right so 12 years 12 years just firstly how are you thinking about this moment do you are you hopeful that we are about to see some changes and some of the changes you've been talking about and even you know proposing legislation about in terms of how the internet works yeah i mean people really want privacy you know most people don't realize or think that it's possible to be private online and, and generally feel powerless to do anything about it. But the will of the people is there. And so when I think the will of the people is there, then ultimately something is going to happen. And I think that's what we're slowly seeing. It may not happen right this second, but I think it is unfolding. 
Well, so can you just give a, a kind of a potted history of DuckDuckGo, which I think would be useful context for people who don't know what it is you guys do, and then we can kind of get more into the, the nitty gritty of the issues. Yeah. So, you know, it, in that moment where people really want privacy right now and don't know what to do about it, DuckDuckGo is that solution. So it's for everyone who's really had enough with all the tracking online, and it lets you take back your privacy online now. Very specifically, we've packed all the privacy essentials that you need to search and browse privately into one package that you can download on any browser or device. Um, and so on mobile, where we see a lot of people spending half their time now, even more during the pandemic, it's a full browser uh, replacement for Chrome or Safari. And it has private search, which is where our roots started, as well as tracker blocking and encryption. And so quite simply, you search in DuckDuckGo, you're anonymous. You click on a link on the search results. We try to send you to the encrypted version of the page. And then when you land on that page, we block all the trackers on the page. Most often Google and Facebook lurking behind the scenes. Right. And so with that package, you're, you're private online. And you started out more specifically as a search engine. That's right. So started way back in 2008, as you mentioned, as a search engine when the internet and the privacy conversation was, was really a lot different than it was today. So. This is five years before Snowden and 10 years before Cambridge Analytica. And right at the time when Google was buying DoubleClick. And yeah. so at that time, you know, even though it wasn't as much mainstream attention as now, I realized a couple things about privacy and search, looking at the DoubleClick acquisition and other things going on. That first, search is really one of the most private spaces on the internet. And that's because people are typing in their most sensitive problems into their search engine. They don't even really think about it. Medical problems, financial problems, et cetera. I've had, I've had Professor Galloway on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you know, but he said, yes. well, you know, just imagine a hack of Google, for example. Exactly. Your search and then you're history, like, right? Oh, what, what STD do I think I have? And oh my God, well, look at my credit score. And oh, here's, you know, it's like all of the most intimate details of your life. They have. And contrast that with you. What I realized is you actually don't need to track any user data or save that search history or any profiles to actually deliver good search results or make money in web search. You literally can make money the way we do, which is just via contextual ads, just based on the current search page you're on. So you type in, say, buy car and get a car ad. Right. All of this tracking and all this stuff that you think Google does is not actually necessary to deliver that core search experience, it's because they own all these other properties, YouTube, Gmail, and ad networks that serve ads on all the sites and apps on the internet. And they're using that search history and other things to target you with ads. And that's kind of why ads follow you around um, the internet all the time. So I started DuckDuckGo uh, trying to just make a better search experience with privacy being one of those pillars. And then up until Snowden, that's when it really started to take mm. off and we thought as a company, we really did a lot more privacy research and realized that, you know, search is one part of people's privacy experience, but in reality, you're tracked a lot of other places online and you need that holistic privacy experience. And so we set out with our current product vision, which is privacy simplified to deliver it all in one seamless package. So as a user, you just really need to think about DuckDuckGo and know to install it. And then you'll be generally protected when you go online. And how does, because obviously one of the Google's um, bits of its secret sauce, which we can talk about, is that it's really a really good search engine, or at least it was historically. And now, oftentimes, you get, you know, the whole f 
page, the whole top of the page on your, say, your laptop is ads. It's almost like a, ye- it's become like a yellow pages. Um, and then yes. if you, <laughs> um, so that has changed, but just trying to understand it. So how good a search engine is DuckDuckGo? Because obviously people stick with Google because they're like, well, it's, you know, it's quite a good job of branding. They're like, it's the best. That's the one that I go to. Yes. Well, that, as you pointed out, that um, notion of being the best is definitely eroding. And it's not just that the page is littered with ads, but a, a couple other things too, is because of that profile, there's a filter bubble on Google. And so when you search, you're not getting the results everyone else is seeing all the time. In fact, you're getting results more that they think you're likely to click on which can lead to polarization and, and kind of other things in aggregate. So search re- search results are also influenced by what they know about, but my, by my history, what they have on me. That's right. And in addition to that, the, the third thing is that like Google over time has just added, and this is part of the antitrust hearings, has added more and more of their own results. So instead of Amazon, which you might want to see, you see Google products. Instead of Yelp, you see Google Places. On DuckDuckGo, we don't have a filter bubble. We partner with all the companies you expect. And so you see all of those regular results like from Yelp um, and TripAdvisor. And also you're getting all the information you would normally get on Google. So we have maps, we have you know Wikipedia answers, we have everything that you need. And so we think it's actually just as good in terms of switching and tens of millions of people use it. So I think that should be some amount of social proof that what I'm saying is true. So yeah, can you just give a, how big are you? Like how often are you used? Kind of, you give some kind of numbers around that. So we do about 65 million searches a day. Our apps and extensions um, that I mentioned with all the essentials in there, including private search, get downloaded about 100,000 times a day, a bit over that. And so at the moment, we are seeing really mainstream usage of DuckDuckGo at this point. It's been a long time coming, but um, I'd say it's fair to say it's mainstream at this point. And what, so what percentage of kind of traffic or searches is that? I imagine it's still quite small, but. Yeah, we're on the order of 2% in the U.S. of search traffic. Market share numbers are interesting. They're kind of hard to come by. And in fact, they're generally based on tracking people. (laughs) And so our um, browser and extension block a lot of those trackers. And so we're actually undercounted in a lot of the numbers. But when we do national surveys and things like that, it's on the order of 2%. And so when you started this, I mean, obviously it's 2008, you're very, a small operation. I mean, can you just talk a little bit about the company? Did you start this as kind of a fun project or was it like, oh, I'm going to raise a bunch of venture capital and, you know, become a world beater? Or is it somewhere in the middle there? Because you're, where are you based? You're not on the East I am based, you know, outside, nowhere near Silicon Valley. I'm based <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I'm currently in the mountains in the Poconos area. I talked to a guy who's on the pod that's just about to go up. He's in Alaska. He's like, okay, that's more remote than I am. (laughs) He's in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. And he said he was on a call and a black bear just like went through like past like his window outside and he was talking to investors and they got very scared. I have groundhogs in, in view. They live in my yard, that kind of nature. (laughs) And so, did you ever think about coming out here and get coming back to this idea of like what what you were trying to do with this company? Like, was it the typical Silicon Valley? I want to make a you know build a before this was a term a unicorn, or <laughs> you know change the world or whatever. So my personal goal is to make uh, the largest positive impact I can make. But as a company goal, it's never been to take over the world or topple Google or anything like that. 
our goal right now is really just to give simple and accessible privacy to everyone who wants it. And that may not be the whole world, but we think it's a large percentage. So when I started DuckDuckGo, it was really just myself as a project to improve my own search experience. And I actually ran it myself for four and a half years. And two of the two and a half of those years, I was also being a stay-at-home dad as the primary caregiver. But then when it started, you know, the search engine became good enough to our earlier part of the conversation where people started switching to it. I realized this could be a bigger thing and started building a team around it. So how many people are you now? We are right about a hundred team members. Oh, wow. And have you done the whole raise money, venture capital, that whole gig? We did um, a raise of venture capital, but we did um, it in a unique way. We haven't raised a ton of rounds and we've done it from investors who are very aligned with our vision and in a minority ownership type of way. Our first partnership with venture capital is with Union Square Ventures. So the same backers of Kickstarter and Meetup and kind of other kind of community organized companies. Got you. Got you. And so can can you talk about like the problems that you see that are inherent with the way most people's internet experience unfolds today? Because I think there's a difference between what you mentioned earlier, you guys do contextual ads. So like if I search for a car, I might see a Tesla ad or whatever, which is different from the way that say Google or I presume even Amazon, which now is getting quite heavily into ads operates. Yeah. I mean, so quite simply, the internet's been overrun by these companies and not just them, hundreds of companies in the ad tech stack that's made it their business to covertly track, manipulate, and exploit people. And so the core obvious thing you see all the time of that are these ads following you around and, you know, which is called retargeting, but the manipulation goes well beyond that. Right. So we mentioned the filter bubble, the same data profiles that are collected based on all this ad tracking are also used to serve different amounts of information at you on these sites. And so you're not necessarily seeing what other people are seeing. And then in addition, even on the ad side, they're been used for discrimination. So not everybody sees the same job ads and house ads and all things like that. And then you get to the election targeting and uh, manipulation there. Um, And it all goes back to this data collection and the behavioral advertising surveillance. And the, the issue with it is a lot of it too is hidden. So most people think of Google as a search engine, as an example, they don't realize that Google's embedded on literally 85% of the top million websites just hiding ad trackers and other analytics trackers. See, because that's the thing that I, to, to that exact point, I think that's a lot of the thing that people don't understand about Facebook and Google, right? Is that they are exactly. the, kind of the, the plumbing of the, all of these ads everywhere and that you have the you know, tracking pixels and things. So it's not just their properties, right? So like, I think people's view of yeah. them is, is I go to their properties and I make a bargain there. But in reality, they're hiding on all of these apps and, ex- and websites all over the internet and collecting information that they're then using to even serve ads on other websites and apps. So completely separate from their properties. Yeah, so they are, they are the ecosystem effectively. That's right. They are in, in effect a duopoly of the digital ad ecosystem. And they've been controlling not only the majority, but the vast majority of all its growth for the last five years. And I am, uh, I am being bid on. Yes. So, and that core exploitation, I think independent of all of the ramifications of it, 
I think is not a deal that you or other people signed up for or want to be signed up for. It's that their profile is being auctioned off to advertisers without their consent. And this is like an automated bidding system that happens a bajillion times, or not a bajillion, but you know, many, many times as I kind of... Yeah. Right. In fact, the real name is RTB real-time bidding. So the auction happens instantaneously when you load a website. And you know our extension actually exposes a lot of this tracking. So if you install the DuckDuckGo extension and you, you click on it, we you can see all the companies tracking you behind there. But there's often, if you go to a news site or even a retail site, you'll see 30 different companies behind the scenes as part of this real-time bidding auction process. And that's kind of insane if you think about it. You don't walk into an offline store with 30 different companies following you around, but that's exactly what you do when you go online today if you don't block it. Just hearing you talk, it just made me immediately think of, and this may be completely like a wrong analogy, but it made me think of a trip I took to Morocco. And I, I'm six foot four and obviously not Moroccan. And I was walking through a bazaar and it was like, I, every third step, somebody else was coming out offering, you know, being like, I will be your guide. No, no, I'll be your guide. All those people over there, they're going to blah, blah. And it was just like, at a certain point, you give up. So after like the 10th guy accosted me, I was like, all right, you, I will pay you X. You're going to be my guide. And then he takes me to his buddy's carpet shop and his buddy's leather shop. And like, they all have these kickbacks. And it was just like, I don't know if they're, that's a similar dynamic, but that's just what made me think of it as you talk about, you know, kind of walking out and having everybody just like shoving money or shoving ads in your face. That's a great analogy. I think the, the difference which makes it more pernicious online is they, they actively have been trying to make it covert, right? So it's happening behind the scenes. It's almost like some of the sci-fi movies where, you know, instead of people following you or harassing you, it's just kind of these advertisements that have been following you around and harassing you. And that amount of kind of breaking the fourth wall there, people have noticed and are sick of it and they're they're tired of being manipulated by the ads but what they don't necessarily realize is that ad piece that they're seeing is just the tip of the iceberg of all the tracking and other manipulation going underneath it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so you had a hand in trying to put like put a lot together basically correct yes so a good question is okay so what do you do about all this yeah. right so from a, a product perspective we're trying to offer something that lets people do something right now right so it'll block all these hidden trackers you can get anonymous search back from a regulatory perspective though there are really things that can be done 
that we think are relatively simple solutions as opposed to big omnibus bills that are much harder to pass. One of those is this notion of do not track. So there was a do not track setting in most browsers and still is in some browsers. And it's a setting, if you go into the privacy settings, you'll see it and it says, turn on do not track. It sounds awesome. And in yeah. fact, like tens of millions of Americans actually turned it on. The problem is it did nothing because it was voluntary. And so very few sites actually agreed to the setting. So after you enabled the setting, it sends a signal to the website, but it was up to them whether to respect it or not. It was up to behold, the, the sites who were saying, don't track this person, be like, mm, no, I'm going to track them. Yeah, no thanks, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And so all you need to do really is add some regulatory teeth behind that and say, okay, if that signal exists, then actually do what it says and don't track somebody. And so that's the bill that we wrote called the Do Not Track Act. And it really just adds teeth behind that setting. Um, and we, Senator Hawley and Senator Feinstein co-sponsored a bill that was very similar to it that was introduced in the Senate last year. And there've been some other bills that other people have proposed that have incorporated the, the concept into it. We're obviously in a uh, election year and a pandemic, so it, it's not, hasn't moved yet, but I'm hopeful that this concept is good and will move. The other couple things that we've been advocating but that, for- But that, that bills containing that kind of core idea have been proposed. That's right. And, and, and just to dig into it more, so contrasting it with Europe, right? So Europe has a big bill, a regulation really called GDPR. Yeah. Uh, but what's happened with GDPR is if you ever go to a European website, you'll see this, you get lots of notices and they're not standard. And you have to dig around to figure out what anything's going on. In effect, it hasn't really worked. Yeah. Um, and so what I like about do not track is the government sets the standard of what it means not to do not track. And once you enable it once, you're one and done. And it could be an opt-out thing where it's enabled automatically and then you have to yeah. opt out if you want to be tracked. But uh, in any case, you only have to do it once and then sites just have to respect it. And so it's a much simpler uh, solution from the consumer perspective. It's a better mousetrap. Yes, I think so. And have you been involved, uh, going back to where we started, the, the hearings that are happening this week, it feels like this is effectively the last thing that they're doing before they come up with their, the, this proposed rule changes, new laws, new regulations, whatever, whatever form it is going to take. So have you been involved in that discussion? Have you been you know, called in by the Senate committee or is it the Senate or the House? I guess the house, right? Multiple committees investigating. <laughs> um, I, I did participate in a Senate hearing and we've also been in touch with all of these agencies. So not just the House and Senate, but the Department of Justice, the FTC and the states all kind of having different investigations around this issue. Uh, now, our focus has mainly been on, you know, privacy, obviously, and, yeah. and Google and Facebook more specifically in the digital advertising world. Has Google kind of hit back at you guys at all? Because, I mean, you're saying, I mean, you go on your website and you have a lot of blog posts and just basically being like, Google is the evil empire. And I know that you've got 2% of the market now, so that maybe they're just like, meh, well, you know, who cares? But they have shown increasing willingness to kind of get down in the mud. You know, I'm thinking of like Barry Lynn, who used to <laughs> run the this uh, competition kind of NGO, and then he got a little too critical of Google, and then he was booted out because its main funder was Eric Schmidt, for example. Yes. 
but I don't know if you've had any any experiences where where they have kind of come at you directly or indirectly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things going on. One is I think the main reaction is they're doing a form of privacy washing, which they're trying to. It's really a deliberate attempt to use privacy, you know, to invoke privacy to help their brand, but not actually deliver it to consumers. So what do you and mean? So they have done a few things there. So they've recently introduced a setting to auto delete data, except it was after 18 months. <laughs> so after your totally data has been strip mined, and then even then it was only to new Google users. So of the 2 billion or how many billion users who already have a Google account, it wasn't going to be enabled for them. And so like right. they came out with a statement and got a big press wave the other day. And the headlines were about like Google's auto deleting for privacy. But if you look, you know, more detailed, it, it didn't happen. And Facebook's done the same thing. Like they had a, when Cambridge Analytica broke, you know, one of their main responses was we're going to create this turn off activity uh, setting. It took yeah. them like 18 months to make the setting. And now the setting still doesn't actually do what it, what it says it's to. It's like on plainly, it doesn't do it. And so I think in general, they've been doing this privacy washing, which is they're trying to like talk about privacy a lot, but not actually deliver it. And that can confuse consumers. Another example of that is like for Google in particular is incognito mode, right? So incognito mode, people use a lot thinking that they're private online, including private to Google, and it doesn't yeah. do that at all. And in fact, there's a, there's a new class action suit against Google about incognito mode and how misleading it is. What does incognito, because it's called incognito. Yes, that's, <laughs> the, that's the core of the suit. It is inherently misleading because the name implies you're anonymous, but in reality, all it does is delete some information from your local computer. It doesn't stop anybody online, including Google, from tracking your movements in incognito mode. So it's kind of like incognito, but like maybe you're like hiding in a bush, but it's a, it's a dry bush with no leaves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you talk about how you started and ran this by yourself for four years. Was there a moment when you realized, oh, this can, was it Snowden, for example, when people first started to wake up to like, oh, this is what is happening on the internet. And oh, I don't like this because it does feel still today. Most people don't care. It, and that, that may be, you may have a different view of that, but that's how it, <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it feels. And so I don't know if you could speak to that. Yeah. So I feels like people don't care because in reality, people just don't think it's possible, but people really do care. The feeling to tease apart there is that they've been throwing up their hands and saying like, I'm resigned to this fate because I don't know how else to do anything. But when we educate them that actually there are things you can do, like we can block all these trackers for you, you know, that is amazing to people and people adopt that immediately. And we've been trying to make it a no brainer uh, solution because it's seamless. It's, it's invoking no sacrifice. You just install it and then you're done. And that's partly why we've been growing so fast, but also be growing in a, in exponentially percentage wise, because it's mainly been friends and family you know, teaching each other and telling yeah. each other about what's going on here. So I don't think it's what people don't care. I just think people don't know what to do. And so that can be perceived as they don't care, but in reality, they do care. They're just waiting for someone to deliver them a good solution. To answer to your other question, there've been two big moments that have 
it really changed the trajectory of both us and this whole market. And mm. you mentioned them. One was Snowden in 2013. The other was Cambridge Analytica um, in 2018. And both because they revealed something that people didn't previously or anyone really knew what was going on, but two, because the media, um, and, I, and I credit you in like this podcast, had relentlessly been covering it after both those incidents for you know the next couple of years and really educating the public about about these things. And so do you have any sense of, of if the whole world today knew about DuckDuckGo, do you have any sense of like, not necessarily like, oh, X amount would, you know, switch, but how, how pervasive this idea is that like, you know, people do want something else, but as you say, they just don't know what to do. Yeah. So a couple of good data points there. So one, we do a lot of research on that. Um, and in particular, in Europe, there's a concept of the search preference menu, which mm. is a regulatory remedy that we want to be introduced in the U.S. as a result of some of these hearings. And that is when you get a new mobile device, ideally, it would ask you, you know, what search provider do you want to choose? And you'd be able to easily choose a private option like DuckDuckGo if you want. When we run that test, user test, we find that on the order of 25% of people choose a non-Google search engine. And just to put that in perspective, in mobile right now in the US, Google has 95% share. So there's immediately this pent up demand for an extra 20% share if like consumers were able to get an easy option and choice and understood what that was. And that's absent to your question, not everyone even knowing about us, like our brand awareness is, is not that high. So I think if everyone really knew and understood and can make an easy choice, we'd be, you know, something on the order of 20% share, not 2% share. Right. And I guess the other question is, you know, because the response often from the big guys is like, you know, people don't have no problem with ads. They have problem with bad ads or irrelevant ads or whatever. We're making these super relevant to you because we know everything about you. Do you buy that argument? No. And when pressed for evidence, you never hear any studies or evidence that comes back that said all these people want to be tracked. And in fact, I think we're going to see a great real natural experiment to that when iOS 14 comes out, because Apple did do something pretty interesting. In oh, the IDFA. Release. Yeah, exactly. And so all these people are going to get... Can you just quickly explain what that is? Yeah, just so people know, because I think it's... Because we did a big piece on it, because I think it's super interesting. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of ways you're tracked online, but one of the ways... And in general, there are these advertising trackers that happen in different realms of the internet. And on mobile, on on iOS, one of them is called this IDFA. And there is a setting you can go and kind of reset or turn that off, but it's buried pretty deep. And so what Apple's going to do in iOS 14 comes out in September is they're going to throw a pop-up and ask when an app tries to use that to track you, do you want to be tracked by this app for relevant advertising or other things? And, and we'll actually the... do just to stop you there quickly, they're pretty prescriptive about the language that one can use, right? It's not yes. like you can't really tap dance around your intention as an, as that app. You have to say, you know, do you want to be tracked for these reasons on all over the internet, et cetera? I mean, it's very kind of stark. Which is the way it should be. And, and, and back to do not track, which is what I'm hoping like a, a do not track regulation would do is, is be prescriptive as to the language so it's more accurate to consumers. But we're going to see whether consumers want that choice or not, you know, and my prediction is most will not select they want to be tracked. 
And do you expect anything um, substantive to come out from this week's events? Or, I mean, it seems to me it feels a little bit like the made-for-TV moment that is part of the whole dance that usually comes with big industries being reined in. But do you have a sense of beyond the do not track stuff, which may or may not make it in, the shape of the regulation or, or the kind of the approach that, you know, because it does feel it's like so difficult to kind of navigate. How how do you actually kind of put the toothpaste back in the tube? Yeah, and and there are a lot of different companies and a lot of different issues that they're kind of floating around, right? But I think at the core of them, a, a privacy really affects most of the stuff that people find wrong with the internet today. So, you know, the discrimination, the election manipulation, the advertising, um, the commercial exploitation, it all flows through this data collection. And so if there are regulations that minimize or curtail the data monopolies, that would be where I would be looking to. So do not track as one. The other two that we've been, you know, advocating for are this idea of a preference menu in the US for users to be able to easily change to a different search provider if they want to. It's very hard to do that on Android today, um, mm. by the way. And so this will really allow consumers to do that. Can you do that on the iPhone? So iPhone has a search engine setting. So you can yeah. go into Safari and select DuckDuckGo and that changes, um, you know, if you use Spotlight, you, it'll search DuckDuckGo. What you can't do on iOS, but they're introducing in iOS 14 is a default browser. So you can make sure when you click on like a Twitter link, it'll open in our private browser. Gotcha. But on Android, it's just a mess. There's no default. There's no default search engine. You know, there's a Google widget you can't change or remove. It's just if you try to use DuckDuckGo on Android, you're in a mess. Yeah. Um, and so making that easy would be would be great for consumers, so they can actively choose a private option. And then the third thing, which is much more specific to to Google and Facebook, is and may not necessarily come from Congress, but could come from the FTC or, or DOJ or other places, is stopping acquisitions that allow the increasing of the data monopoly or even going back and saying, you need to separate data in between your business units. Because a lot of what happened with Google happened in 2012 when they changed their privacy policy to say, now we're gonna share data across all of our units. So search Maps, history, Maps, Gmail, YouTube, their ad double click, you know, it all became one big profile on you. If that mm. had to be separated back where search stayed with search and YouTube stayed with YouTube and Gmail stayed with Gmail, that would be a much better world for consumers. Right. I mean, but to your point, is there any innate reason or is it more marketing? that they've chosen to go the behavioral route to basically build these profiles and kind of interpret all these signals to sell you ads as opposed to contextual immediately responding to something. Is it kind of like, is it a, a little bit of selling of the black box, the magic of Silicon Valley, we're doing it better? I think so. So there's a nuanced point here, which is really interesting, which is we think contextual advertising can be just as profitable and relevant as behavioral advertising. And so if you're on DuckDuckGo, the search ads you get are very clearly related to the search terms you are. The same thing could be applied to YouTube, like the content of that video, or Facebook, the, the news that you're watching or video you're watching right now. It's not, though. They chose to go this behavioral route, and they're making the case to advertisers and publishers that that's somehow more profitable to them. But in reality, they're taking most of the dollar that goes into that advertising. And like you said, it's a big black box. However, from their perspective, it's super strategic because 
if you have the audience and all the data, then no one can compete with you and offer it because no one else has as much data. And so what we'd love to do is open up the advertising market to be more contextual. And the way to do that would be to break up those data silos. So does that mean, would you like to see a breakup? And I know that it's kind of, it's very vague, but it's the kind of the popular refrain of like, let's break up big tech, break up the Silicon Valley giants because they're just too big. So I, I, I'm a little ambivalent into exactly how you break up the data monopoly. I'm practical and want to see it broken up as quickly as possible. So I think a, the quickest solution to doing that is a mandate to the company is to say you can't share data between business units or if you acquire something, you know, for new business units too. If you start breaking up companies, that may work. I'm not sorry, against it, but it's just longer to do historically. Like it takes a lot of time in the courts. It's hard to make happen. And then yeah. also you end up with companies that merge again. So like if you look at, you know, the history of like breaking up AT&T and then the baby bells coming back to just be yeah. monopolies again that share data again, like I still think at the end of the day, you'll get data monopolies again. So I think the core thing you want to do is not allow these profiles to exist. Yeah. And that gets to the point around, you just need better regulation, it feels like. Yes. Or, or enforceable regulation. Because Microsoft was ordered to break up almost 30 years ago, and it never did. Because you can just tie that up in the courts for, for eons, and that's just the yeah, way Yeah, and then goes. the appeal got overturned in the end. Yeah. You know, so, and it took, yeah, it took a decade for the whole thing to unfold. And so I, I don't want to wait a decade to solve this privacy problem. Yeah. Are you kind of like an accidental entrepreneur? Because it just feels like this thing which you've created now, which employs 100 people and is 2% of searches. I mean, that's all quite substantial, but for almost five years, you're running it part-time while you're running after your kids. <laughs> yes. I I started a educational software company right out of college, and that was somewhat mm. accidental. And then I worked for a nonprofit for a little bit. But I'd say my... My general goal is just to to make a bigger impact, positive impact. And so, again, I'm, I'm kind of ability on how to do that. And I, to your point, I, I kind of fell into this. So I don't right. know if I call it accidental entrepreneur because I was doing that before, but it was somewhat of a, um, there's some happenstance to being here today. And then lastly, I, I can't remember if we answered it or addressed it, but has, has Google come at you directly in one, in one form or another to kind of try to clip your wings or undermine your company or, you know, sue you, compete you to death, whatever. <laughs> I mean, our goal is not really anti-Google, I'd say. It's to give people who want privacy more privacy. That has definitely come to head with Google many times, mm. right? So we're arguing in Europe about this preference menu right now. They designed one that we think is suboptimal. We've been very public about its deficiencies and they've been public against our criticism. Whether you describe that as coming at us, I don't know. But like we've been we've been openly critical to your point and they've dispute, you know, when, when people write press articles, they get a quote from Google and often dispute our claims. Like we also did a yeah. as an example, we did a big filter bubble study showing the filter bubble on Google and they had a press rollout about combating that study. Right. And then the one other aspect I wanted to see if you've seen any kind of effect of is is the the rise of Amazon as an advertiser as an advertising company I don't know if you have seen what ways you have seen that manifest if any 
We have not crossed paths as much with them, in part because, and this may change in the next uh, year or two if they expand a lot beyond their own property, but yeah. still a lot of Amazon advertising is happening most of on all like, on their properties, yeah, yeah, and only on their properties. And it's also in a it's in a very lucrative, but in a in a more narrow bucket of yeah. you know e-commerce. Um, cool. Well, look, I think those are all my questions. Unless you think you, we we've missed anything, I can leave you to uh, to more important matters. Um, thank you very much. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Gabriel for taking the time from his outpost in the Poconos. I want to thank you for listening as usual, and I want to thank huge, huge shout out to Chica Ayers my producer on this podcast for basically since we started and also of Tales of Silicon Valley, which of course we were nominated for many awards. We were highly commended. We didn't win, but we were up there, uh, which all is all that matters, of course. Um, But anyhow, Chica now has gone off and got a proper job, but we kind of made uh, made a way out of no way, as they say, with this pod and of Tales of Silicon Valley. So much love and respect to Chica now that she is uh, gone and got a respectable job elsewhere. And a big welcome to Daisy, who is my new producer. My heart goes out to you, Daisy. I hope it's not too much of a chore. But anyhow, thank you guys for listening. Take a moment. Give us a rating and review before you go. It really helps, especially these in these crazy pandemic-y times. And we will be back next week with one, maybe even two pods. Who knows? Um, We've got a few things in the works. So until then, stay safe, stay sane. Talk soon. Bye-bye.